Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. Model, entrepreneur, talent manager, ad tech and marketing professional. These are just some of the roles that comprise the eclectic career of Amanda Dorenberg, a native of Prince Edward County. Amanda fast-tracked her education, graduating high school when she was just 16, before moving on to study computer programming in college and marketing in university. Modeling was Amanda's first big career move, which took her on shoots around the globe. While modeling, she saw an opportunity to put her marketing prowess to work and began representing some of her fellow models. But all of this would come to a grinding halt one day, as Amanda would be rushed to the emergency room with an arteriovenous malformation a traumatic brain injury that's guaranteed to be lethal if not treated immediately. Amanda would wake up from brain surgery hours later, virtually immobile, and forced into months of rehabilitation to regain many of her basic functions. She went on to make a full recovery and would begin her ascent through the advertising and tech world, holding positions at Post Media, Sizlock, Dynamic Outdoor, Outfront Media, Centris, and Frontrunner Technologies. Amanda's latest role is an out-of-home advertising homecoming of sorts, as she was recently appointed president of the Canadian Out-of-Home Marketing Measurement Bureau. Amanda Dorenberg stops by to chat about her days as a model, balancing work at a call center and grocery store while enrolled as a full-time student, and her experiences in the out-of-home and ad tech industry. I am the new president at the Canadian Out-of-Home Marketing and Measurement Bureau, uh, also known as COMB. My role with Comb primarily is to provide both measurements as well as marketing services to the out-of-home industry. And so what does that mean? Basically, from a measurement standpoint, it is providing all of the audited impressions for the out-of-home inventory, both static as well as digital, providing a baseline understanding as to, you know, what really the out-of-home industry can expect from a standardization uh, perspective. And then on the marketing side, it's really just being the voice for the out-of-home industry. So trying to promote um, additional market share from a, a revenue standpoint for all of our members, trying to ensure that the out-of-home industry is really seen as a valuable asset in the media mix. I want to go back to the beginning. Where are you from? I grew up in Prince Edward County, uh, which back then was not as, as fancy as it is now. <laughs> now it's basically wine country. Um, but when I was growing up, it was basically just farm fields and and grass everywhere. Kind of like Niagara on the lake, like you said, with all the wineries in there, was there any sort of inclination that the whole Prince Edward County area was going to take off when you were growing up or nothing at all? Not much, to be honest. There was one, um, winery or, or cider, if if I recall correctly, they, they primarily sold cider, uh, that I can, that I can recollect as a child going to with my, my parents. And it was really interesting because I, I can recall it sat on the top of this massive hill and it overlooked like this beautiful property and you could see the water. Um, but to be honest, there was pretty much no inclination that it would be what it is today. What was life like growing up? It was interesting. <laughs> uh, most people who know me know that I'm pretty much an open book when it comes to, you know, life and, and just things in general. Uh, so growing up was... Um, not a typical childhood, I would say. I moved out uh, two days after my 16th birthday. And um, at the time I had graduated high school quite young. I, I actually graduated at 16 and then moved out to uh, continue my education. Uh, so it, it was tough for sure. I stayed in you know one place overall, uh, my, my younger years, let's say zero to 16, but um, certainly post 16, I moved around a lot. And, um, it was a struggle, you know, you're on your own at such a young age, you don't really expect or understand what's happening. When you say that you graduated at the age of 16, I assume you were probably taking classes a grade or two ahead of where you were supposed to be at that point. Yes, yeah, I skipped a couple grades in um, elementary school and I fast-tracked through high school. Uh, at the time when I was in high school, I was actually modeling as well. And then when I graduated to continue into Uh, My college years, I was working full time while going to college. I was also modeling and uh, doing my education in computer programming and systems analysis as well. So it it was a juggling act, to say the least. Well, take me through what one day looked like 
for you then because you managed that you sorry you you mentioned that you were in college doing computer programming you were modeling and then you were also working late nights at a grocery store to help pay for tuition correct me if i'm wrong yes yeah that's correct uh, so I would wake up, um, so my full-time job at that time was at a call center doing tech support. So I would work full-time, uh, from 7am until 3.30. And then I would do my college courses. Uh, I basically got, um, remote courses approved from my, uh, teachers and, and faculty based on my situation. So for the most part, my college was, uh, completely remote. I would go in to do exams and, and whatnot, but, um, after 3.30, I would go home. I would I would do my student work, let's say. And then uh, in the evening, starting at midnight until about 3 a.m., I would work at a grocery store. <laughs> and then in between when I had, uh, you know, modeling jobs here and there, I would I would take, uh, I would skip the typical routine, let's say, and, and take the modeling job because it was a bit more lucrative. I want to talk about the modeling in a little bit, but your biggest passion or hobby, visual artist? I like to draw and paint. I actually really enjoy drawing people, which is interesting. Um, I like their faces for the most part. And, in, in, you know, from a creative standpoint, I think it's it's a very challenging thing to capture emotion uh, in a drawing or in a painting. And so I, I started drawing at a really young age. I'm not sure where I got that talent from because nobody in my family is very creative. Um, but yeah, I started drawing at such a young age and, and I continued with it through um, throughout the years, I mean, I haven't actually picked up a pencil in a, a couple of years now. I'm just too busy with adult life, let's say. Um, but I, I love to to be creative. So is it safe to say growing up that your sketchbook wasn't very far from you? I would say that's an accurate statement. Yeah, I um, maybe I took reprieve in just like diving into a, a piece, whether it was, you know, just sketching around various things or whether it was actually creating a full drawing. <laughs> Um, or a full painting. But yeah, I definitely have a lot of, of sketchbooks lying around the house. What's really interesting is, is that you were big into art, you were into modeling as well, but your first foray into post-secondary education was actually computer programming. Why pick that versus, say, where your hobbies and passions lied? <laughs> um, it's actually quite a funny story. So I was so young when I was going to college, obviously at 16, I had no idea what I wanted to do with life. And to be perfectly frank, I looked at the college um, application booklets that showcase, you know, the various courses that you could apply for. Um, and they also indicated typical salaries post-graduation. And computer programming happened to be one of the higher paying post-graduate salaries. And that is why I took it. It's kind of a weird thing because the guidance counselors at my high school were like that as well. They wanted you to follow your passion. But as soon as you started pointing towards a program that they didn't find very lucrative, they'd be like, you can't make money doing that. Try again. Go back and do your math and sciences. It kind of seems like they were really good at pushing young people away from that. And then they've caught in adulthood, they kind of have to find a way to fuse everything they loved in the past back to their professional life. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> uh, I don't even remember talking to guidance counselors about, you know, post-secondary education. I just remember, like, I think because I fast-tracked so quickly through school and I was doing so much all at the same time, I just literally was focused on, like, okay, how am I going to pay my rent and what's going to make me the most money? <laughs> the passion projects can be hobbies up until I'm capable of making them some form of a career, let's say. Oh, my guidance counselor was all about the math and sciences. As a matter of fact, I did grade 12 math twice. I loved it so much, but that's for another day. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> so your first job ever, you were a babys babysitter. I was, yeah. I started to babysit a neighbor's daughter. Uh, I think she was like nine months when I started to babysit her. And I was honestly a child myself, <laughs> um, probably like 12 or 13 I had an older brother and he used to paint uh, the neighbor's fence um, and do sort of like the lawn work and the handiwork around their house. And uh, they asked me to, to look after their child. And to be honest, they didn't even really need a babysitter most of the time. Like they were home. They just had me there helping out, probably because they spotted some challenges within my parental scenario, let's say. <laughs> uh, but I, I babysat this sweet young girl from, you know, she was nine months up until she was about five. And uh, it was a really interesting time. She was such a, a joy, brought a lot of laughter into my life. One thing that you and I have in common, we both worked at Sears to help pay for school. 
Tell me about your experience working in the women's fashion department. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Fears. Can you even remember when, when that was a, a huge department store? Uh, oh, I do remember that. <laughs> it was really fun. Um, I, I didn't last too long, but uh, I, I worked in women's fashion. I started just, you know, folding clothing and then uh, moved up to being able to actually work the cash register. Big moves, big career moves. And um, I just, you know, customer service and customer facing roles, let's say, were not my strong suit at the time. Um, so I would often get frustrated with some of the clients' requests to, you know, gift wrap things. And <laughs> it, it was fun. I love how you refer to them as clients. It's kind of a Freudian slip from where we are now in our careers because technically they're supposed to be customers. I know. Yeah, it is a bit of a Freudian slip, I suppose. When I was at Sears, I worked in a liquidation center and I mean, at least, at least the women's fashion department was pretty siloed. You know what it contained, but me, I was selling furniture and appliances, lawnmowers, and then eventually women's garments made its way into my department along with toys. So I was kind of all over the place. I, I know what you're saying about dealing with the customers because I learned a lot about patients there. People would come up to me and complain that the refrigerator we had on the floor was dented and I'd have to explain to them, yes, we're the liquidation center. We sell the dented fridges. And I, I would lose my mind sometimes over that. Would you say you learned a lot about patience in hindsight from that role? Cause I definitely did. Yeah. Hindsight. I mean, hindsight's always 2020. I definitely learned a lot and I certainly wouldn't have changed anything about my past life, um, including my time at Sears, but, um, patience for sure. I, I would say I, I learned from, I started to learn from Sears. I don't know that I wholly learned it from that experience, but I certainly, uh, was exposed to the requirements to gain more patience. So you graduate from Loyalist College, and at that point you had partially taken that program because you had seen in a brochure what the earning potential was. But instead of going out into the working world, you went back to university. Why Trent and why marketing communications? I actually fell in love with the marketing comm side of the world, let's say, uh, through my modeling and fashion career. And so, you know, being a model, people think it's very superficial and it's all about your looks, but it's it's actually completely not. Uh, there were some of the most quirky looking, you know, girls modeling, guys modeling that I had ever met, both personality wise and, and aesthetic wise. And it's really just about do you have the mindset to approach this as a career versus as a superficial art, let's say. So being exposed to how brand campaigns were created um, in the actual studio where you're creating the, you know, the advertisements to promote a specific product or a specific service, understanding and, and being a part of that process really inspired me to say, hey, I really want to take this a bit further and actually understand more of the, the flip side. So I get how the creative side of the advertising world works now, but I wanted to understand more on the business and the communication side. Uh, so that's why I took... Um, my, that's why I went to university for my bachelor's degree in marketing. Let's talk about your modeling career though, because that really dominates a good chunk of the early portion of your professional life. Uh, the first question is, how did you get into modeling? Were you discovered? Did you apply? Yeah, I was scouted actually by a scout from elite model management when I was, I think 14. I was, I was very, very young and um, happened to be in Toronto, even though I, I didn't obviously live in Toronto at the time, but I uh, happened to be there with some some friends and we were just walking in the mall and somebody came up to me and gave me their card and said, hey, if you're interested, give us a call kind of thing. So I was always intrigued by fashion. I, I you know, used to be a, a young fashionista. I would order the Seventeen magazine and, and follow those, you know, childhood teen mags, let's say. Fashion always interested me. I never really saw myself as like the girl who could be in the, ma the magazine. <laughs> um, but it was an opportunity at the time to sort of escape my parents, you know, from 14 to 16. And then I saw that I could actually make some money off of this and, and really kind of did fall in love with the creative process, you know, visual storytelling, essentially. Um, so, yeah, I, I called them and, and um, kind of the rest is history. I ended up getting representation from a number of um, national, international, and global modeling agencies. And I got to travel a ton. I went to some crazy places that I would never have expected to go to. Uh, and, you know, just saw a, a different side of the world, really. 
that's interesting. What would you say is the craziest place or the one place that stood out from your travels? Um, my favorite modeling gig travel wise was in Serbia. Um, and I spent a couple of months there. It was really interesting because I'd not, you know, globally traveled that much at the time. So it was one of my first or earlier international travel um, components. And just really one of the first experiences um, within the, you know, the European culture. It, it was quite interesting. It wasn't, you know, short, it wasn't very long after the um, bombing of, of uh, Belgrade. And so I, I did see some of the, let's say, war-torn components, uh, but it, it was just such an inspiring time. And I remember going to Montenegro, which is this small little coastal town. And at the time, it wasn't very touristy, but now it's like a tourist hotspot. Uh, and I just remember the ocean, the smell of the ocean, the salt and, you know, stray dogs running around. And I actually made friends with a stray dog, which I still think about to this day. <laughs> yeah, but it, it was really an interesting time. During this time, though, you didn't just model, but you started actually to help some of your, I guess, some of your fellow models market themselves. Talk a little bit about how you were doing the representation with them and also explain to us how you managed to forge that relationship. Because and literally my modeling experience goes back to as an outsider, what I've seen in movies or on America's Next Top Model it doesn't seem like there's a lot of camaraderie in that business. Have I got that wrong? And if I'm right, how did you manage to forge relationships with people that might've viewed you as competition? Because you weren't just working, you just weren't working the business side of it. You were working the runways as well. Yes. It's an interesting perspective that the world has on, on fashion. They definitely see it as very cutthroat, but I, I think a lot of that has to do with the commercialization of the industry. Um, in all reality, like, some of the girls that I met were incredibly inspiring, very intelligent, uh, you know, doctors, law students. Um, there was more camaraderie than what is illustrated <laughs> in TV and, and movies. Uh, and I think that because I had found, you know, relative success, let's say, some of the younger models would ask me for advice and, and they'd say, you know, they'd come to me and say, you know, I'm, I'm independent. How do I get an agency? Like, what do I need to do? And really looking for advice uh, from somebody who has experience within that space. Uh, so I kind of saw a gap in the marketplace to, to create both a placement agency for models, but also an artist representation arm uh, within that. So I really started freelancing, let's say. I, I had great connections at international modeling agencies around the world. So I would just introduce some of these girls who were coming to me asking for advice. And then I realized, oh, there's a term for this. It's called a mother agent. And I should probably open a business to <laughs> capitalize on some of the um, benefits of placing girls, because as a mother agent, you hold a percentage of their, their their commissions, let's say, for the duration of their career. So once I learned that, I was like, okay, I think I can turn this into a bit of a business, um, and that's that's how I started. Help me understand what you did to help promote uh, your peers or your clients. I guess we could call them clients now. Was this pre-Instagram and pre-Facebook? Because I tend to think that that seems to be the nucleus for promoting would-be models, would be Instagram, Facebook, any type of social media, but there might not have been that, or it might not have been a mature medium at that point to do so. There was definitely no Instagram. <laughs> there, Facebook was you know, starting to trend. We had Twitter, but utilization of social media for promotion was not... Um, fronts of, of mind let's say so it was a lot of <clears throat> networking a lot of events a lot of you know just cold calling and <laughs> door knocking let's say in the sense of going to magazine publishers going to the art directors sourcing online their contact information and just like blindly emailing them with a package of girls um, just really it, it was a hustle <laughs> a hustle and grind for sure uh, I wish, you know, we had Instagram at the time because it would have been a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems like you're totally owning your career at this point. And then your health takes a bit of a turn. And I think a bit of a turn is kind of an understatement. <laughs> tell us about your diagnosis. The day you were diagnosed with, and I'm, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, brain arteriovenous malformation. Oh, you didn't mispronounce it. Well done. Uh, I remember it vividly it was june 17th 2009 and um i <laughs> I, just, I i think about this day a lot i actually got the dates of both my 
aneurysm as well as my surgery date tattooed on my arms because they're very impactful uh, points of my life. So the day, let's say the incident, the day of the incident, uh, I was actually on set at a photo shoot. I was uh, shooting with a fellow named Brian Egan, who was a very well-known, is, I should say, a very well-known photographer and, and retoucher. He actually uh, retouched for Rankin, who is a global photography god, let's say. <laughs> so I was, uh, I just actually wrapped the shoot with him. They put some like purple stuff in my hair and I, I remember just like leaning into the sink and like washing <laughs> the purple stuff out of my hair because I had another uh, shoot immediately after that I, I just had the most incredible pain in my head like I, I can't even express how painful this was it felt like somebody was taking a knife and just ramming it into my brain it was so painful you know naturally as a I think it was 26 at the time 26 year old who was young healthy otherwise I didn't drink I didn't party I was just like really focused on career and work I just kind of thought okay well I'm dehydrated I'm hot these these photo studios are don't typically have great air circulation or air conditioning so I was like okay I'm just going to go out into the hallway near an open window and take a breather so fortunately for me my makeup artist who was on set that day happened to be a former EMT and I'll, I'll never forget this she follows me out into the hallway and she's like, are you okay? She starts asking me some questions. She starts asking me what type of pain it is. She's like, is it throbbing? Is it stabbing? Is it pulsing? And in my head, I'm like, what difference does it make? I'm just in so much effing pain right now. <laughs> um, and literally just the last thing I remember after that was, I don't know if I fell or if I sat on the floor, but I was on the floor and I was trying to pick up my phone. And I lost all mobility on my right side. So I kept like dropping my phone and then I just blacked out. <laughs> um, I woke up in ICU and uh, they had done a procedure. It's really an interim procedure, uh, which basically cauterized the bleed in my brain uh, to stop the bleeding and uh, to see, essentially evaluate how much damage had occurred um, during the, the process of, of that aneurysm. <laughs> Did you feel like you were in some sort of alternate reality when you woke up? Because you're in pain, you pass out, you wake up, and the doctors are explaining to you what exactly you just endured and what they had just done to you. Did you have to do a bit of a double take and be like, okay, stop, what are you saying? What what, what did you just do? I mean, when I woke up, I wasn't even cognitive enough for them to actually explain things at the time. So I woke up literally with like tubes, what seemed to be everywhere. There was a one of my throat that I remember vividly, uh, which I later learned was so that the doctors and surgeons could actually push medicine immediately to my heart to pump it through my body quicker. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> it was intense. Yeah. Um, I had lost about 85 to 90% of my, my vision. I had lost mobility on my right side. Uh, so I, I was really just, you know, when I immediately woke up, I I had no understanding of really what was going on. The people around me in ICU were just these hazy, foggy figures. Um, <clears throat> and I think I spent about four to five days just in and out of sleep before the swelling and bruising that had, had occurred in my brain from the um, hemorrhagic stroke had, had subsided enough that uh, they felt I could go into sort of regular care for the next many, many weeks. Um, and it was there that they had actually explained what had happened and that they advised me that I would need um, full-on brain surgery, uh, which is essentially a craniotomy. So um, during that procedure, that, that didn't happen until September. I wasn't well enough uh, between the June incident uh, through until the end of September um, to have surgery. There was just too much damage, swelling and, and bruising to the brain. It wasn't safe for them to actually, you know, remove a piece of my skull and ultimately remove, you know, brain tissue, damaged brain tissue and, and damaged veins and vessels. So it, it was a long process. <laughs> How do you keep your cool at this point? Because when they, they do take you out of that induced coma, when they did the first round of surgery and you start to come to after a couple of days, how does that not put you into shock? I don't know. To be honest. I think I was just like so young and naive. I just, I never felt scared and I, I can recollect even like the day my surgery day like rolling into St. Michael's Hospital at 
6 a.m. knowing that I'm about to have a 12-hour surgery where they're literally opening my head and brain. And I just felt at ease. I felt calm. I just, I, I never thought that things weren't going to go well, <laughs> which call it my young naivety uh, or youthful confidence. But um, I mean, I'm grateful for it now. <laughs> So take us through some of the rehab you had to go through in order to be well enough for the second and final procedure. To be honest, there was no rehab other than rest heavily medicated. <laughs> really, it's just kind of stay on your back and just don't stress out and take your meds. Yeah, I was in a lot of pain from the the bruising and to the brain and, and let's say the damage. Honestly, like it, it was just time. I had to wait until the bruising subsided and healed um, internally. The, the bleeding had sort of, you know, gone away, let's say. Uh, so there really wasn't any rehab between um, June and, and September when I ultimately had the full craniotomy. It was it was just highly medicated, um, stay sleeping, you know, 23 out of 24 hours a day, and you're awake for one hour just to eat. <laughs> it, it was a challenge for me mentally and, and physically. I, I remember at one point, um, I, I was in the hospital for the bulk of that time, but uh, St. Michael's had actually ran out of hospital beds and uh, sent me home under 24 hour care. And because my vision still hadn't, you know, returned, let's say there was still too much damage to that portion of the brain. I lived in a two story house at the time and I couldn't get upstairs to the bedroom. <laughs> so I ended up moving the mattress downstairs onto the living room floor and just basically sleeping there for the next several weeks until um, I, I got the call that they had actually booked my my surgery. Uh, there was obviously a number of tests that I had to go through during that time. I think monthly, I think it was monthly, um, I was doing something called an angiogram. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's like the most painful test ever. They they bring you into this room with all of this like 3D computer software that essentially like scans and, and creates these 3D images of your brain, the vessels, the veins and whatnot, and, and can identify uh, if there's like resi residual bleeds or if there are small or like areas um, of vessels or veins that are not responding appropriately um, and where all the damage is. They could see where the aneurysms were. Um, it was really interesting, but the test was like torturous. They, they literally cut into your femoral artery. You're completely awake. They put some numbing cream on you, but like it doesn't help. <laughs> Just numbing cream. That's it. Like they don't try. They don't go no, with the novocaine. Oh God. No, just some numbing cream. They figured you're already hopped up enough on on the you know payments. They <laughs> yeah, they cut into your femoral artery in the groin, and they weave this sheath through like through the heart up to the base of the neck. And you're not supposed to feel anything, but literally, I I could tell my doctor exactly where the thing was in the back of my neck. I could feel the whole thing. It was so creepy. And they shoot this like once the you know, the sheath is in place and they've got all the radioactive, radioactive like mats on your body to cover you up. They go into an uh, observing room and they trigger the, um, they basically send this dye, this imaging dye through the sheath into your brain. And it actually causes these like physical reactions. And for the most part, they would typically tell you, okay, expect some tingling in your cheeks or expect, you know, a, a numb feeling here for 30 seconds. Uh, and what this dye did was allow them to actually take the 3D imaging and obviously see any issues. But at one point, they sent the dye, they, they like clicked their little remote button and sent the dye into my brain. But it actually made my heart like palpitate insanely fast. And I literally <laughs> panicked. I started like I couldn't breathe. I just started like freaking out. And then one of the nurses came in. They were like, oh, it's okay. It's okay. It's part of the, it's from the dye. It's, you know, the area within the brain that triggered that reaction. Calm down, calm down. <laughs> oh, it was a nightmare. And then after they're done, like the procedure itself takes 20 or 30 minutes. But it's afterwards that's such a pain because you literally have to lay flat on a bed with a medicine ball on your groin for three to four hours before you're actually able to get up and, you know, go home if you're going home after your day surgery or go back into your typical hospital room. Uh, so I, I hate those procedures. <laughs> Is that because they don't want you to reopen the, the arterial wound? Because if you do, I mean, that's a quick way to be a goner. It is. Yeah. Yeah. That is because of that, which actually happened to me once. Oh, jeez. Um, yeah. My final 
this was well post-surgery, like a, a, a year post my surgery, I was still doing angiograms, but just in a less frequent interval. And they always go in generally in the same area. And I remember this particular angiogram, they were having trouble actually like getting into the artery because there was so much scar tissue from all of the prior oh, tests. <laughs> and so they finally got in, they did the test and I'm, I'm laying in recovery, but I was there for so much longer than it typically was. Like I was there for five, six hours laying with this freaking medicine ball being pumped with IV. And I'm like, nurse, you know, nature's calling. I need to get up. <laughs> <laughs> so she gets me up and, and walks me uh, to the restroom. And I remember standing at the sink, washing my hands, thinking, did I just like pour water on my leg? <laughs> and I looked oh, down and the, the incision had burst and I had literally just enough time to hit the emergency button on the wall before I passed out. So <laughs> it was an interesting ride. So how did this experience, if I can even call that, impact both your career as a model and a talent manager? Because on one side, you're an employee, but the other side, you're also an entrepreneur. Yeah. I mean, during that time, uh, post-surgery, I actually ended up having to close my business, uh, my artist representation business, um, just to focus on my health and recovery. I did take a few modeling jobs here and there, um, but it also allowed me some time to really think about what it was that I uh, first and foremost, had, had just gone through, but also how I wanted to pivot uh, my career. I, I had always been very entrepreneurial. Um, I obviously had a love of technology and a love of media, and I really kind of wanted to blend the two together. So I would say that this it, it really fueled me to make some some very drastic changes. You know, I lived uh, at the time I lived outside of Toronto, and I, I made a decision. Um, you know, moving downtown, I actually want to chase a career in, in marketing and, and advertising technology. And um, so I, I, I would say I pivoted my personal life and career life very drastically after that. So what brought you to Post Media and what did you do there? Uh, I took a contract job at Post Media and um, it was really my first, I would say, advertising job. So I was hired as an innovations manager and um, essentially my role was to create new ways to employ technology within a traditional media format. So it's obviously at the time it was very heavily on print media versus, you know, their online um, presence. And I worked to introduce things like augmented reality um, into their print newspaper component. So uh, if, you know, the sales team was working on a specific uh, pitch for clients, they would come to the innovations department and say, you know, how can we enhance this, this sales pitch that I'm working on? How can we increase, you know, opportunity to, to engage? Um, how can we incorporate new technologies? And um, that was kind of my role. So what was the most challenging part about it? Was it the technical aspect or is it getting print and digital sides of the business to work more closely together? I know which one I'd pick. <laughs> Certainly the latter. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, the print media space was relatively antiquated and hadn't seen much disruption uh, for decades. And the onset of new technologies and the opportunity to engage consumers in more of an interactive way in a print media format was a struggle for both, I would say, both the sales side of the business, so internal sales reps, like traditional sales reps, as well as on the client side, there was certainly a learning um, or an educational process that that had to happen. And uh, I would say that that would be where I started my client facing part of the career or my career, I should say. So what brought you to Seaslock Media? Was this your first foray into out-of-home advertising? Technically, yes. Let me backtrack, actually. So Seaslock Media was actually a spin-out of a former company that sold their Canadian assets. Uh, so... That company was a global out-of-home company at the time. They had um, contracts and inventory across the UK, across the United States, and in Canada. So it was called Titan Outdoor. And I had joined Titan Outdoor as their marketing director, um, but quickly learned that they didn't have any um, technical bodies, let's say, <laughs> within the um, company. And I took over managing both all of the marketing initiatives, but also all of their IT infrastructure. Um, so a really deep understanding of, of, you know, their data processing, their server structure, all of that 
nerdy IT stuff. Um, and then Titan decided to sell the Canadian assets uh, of their business. And the these assets were acquired by, for the primary part, by a private equity firm, as well as the um, general manager of Canada uh, at the time of Titan. And that formed Seaslock Media. So at Seaslock, because we were technically a startup that was breaking away from legacy um, infrastructure from a corporate standpoint, I had double duty to the like <laughs> 10th anthem. Uh, I was responsible for creating all of the branded imagery. So literally, like I designed the logo, did all of that myself, uh, created the whole go-to-market strategy from a marketing and sales standpoint simultaneously creating all of the IT infrastructure, breaking away from uh, on-premise servers that the legacy uh, parent company had, uh, migrating over to full cloud infrastructure, implementing a full end-to-end customized ERP system that ran every component of the business from inventory management through to sales um, pipelines, through to operational components, and then into finance. Um, And I also was able to actually implement a first-to-market mobile and traditional out-of-home, static out-of-home offering, which at the time was a first-to-market in the Canadian space. So it was was a fun journey. I don't think I slept like at all for my entire three or four years with with the company. (laughs) Uh, No, it definitely sounds like you accomplished a lot there. So then what brought you to Dynamic Outdoor Media and how was your role different from your time at Seaslock? Dynamic is an interesting story. Um, Seaslock used to have a representation agreement with uh, an outside company to sell some of their digital out-of-home assets. Uh, So it was a sales rep agreement, essentially. And that company decided, hey, we could probably make more money if we had an internal sales team. Uh, So they canceled that sales rep agreement with Seaslock. And uh, I was approached to come and basically... I'm just going to say rinse and repeat what I did at Seaslock, you know, build the brand um, image, the go-to-market strategy, um, create their their IT infrastructure, create all of their sort of um, fundamental tools to be a successful organization. Uh, But one of the big differences here was um, I actually had the opportunity to build a first-to-market, we called it an audience intelligence platform. And um, essentially, we created a product that ingested um, geospatial mobile application data, cellular carrier data, uh, as well as smart city data uh, into a data management platform or a DMP. And that allowed us to um, create audience profiles and understand the consumer behaviors, consumer demographics, uh, psychographics, behavioral components of audiences or devices actually passing by directionally specific billboard locations uh, versus the historical way of understanding demographics, which was those who live around a specific billboard. Uh, So it was a really interesting time for me. Does that include the kind of tech that can track with a heat map whether or not someone's looking at a specific ad as well? Because I think that for at a home is probably probably one of the most underrated and pivotal things out there because then you can see whether or not your ad is actually getting someone's attention. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting. Um, we did, we did um, feed. So the, the heat map component of who's actually exposed to your specific advertisement uh, is done on either a 30 minutes or 15 minutes um, intervals in the out of home space currently. And so it's typically done through programmatic exchanges Uh, So what we had done was take our proprietary data and we had it on hour by hour basis uh, for all of our locations across Canada. And we fed that into a programmatic DMP, which then was able to serve up curated content or targeted advertisements based on a consumer's um, patterns of movements within a 15 minute interval. So we could understand if there was a high concentration of, of devices exposed to a billboard location that happened to be 18 to 34 that, you know, have dogs and I don't know, like beer. So that, that was really cool. We did have all of the visualization tools that had, you know, the heat maps as well as, you know, the pinpoints and and we had home origin information. So we could export the six digit postal codes of those exposed to specific content and provide that back to our um, advertising and agency partners. Uh, so yeah, it was really fun. My nerdy, my nerdy inside loved it. <laughs> when Dynamic was acquired by Outfront, 
how did that acquisition change, say, both the work you were doing day to day and your role? Quite drastically, actually. Um, so Dynamic was a very lean operation uh, organization. We only had about eight people, I think, in, in the entire company, the bulk of which were in Toronto. We had a couple in, in Montreal and maybe one in Vancouver. Um, but all of the work that I had been doing was pretty much solo. I didn't have a, a team that I could rely on to um, help execute, you know, the marketing strategies or the, the emerging tech and programmatic um, implementations. That was all kind of uh, on, on my solo shoulders, let's say. And so when we were acquired, I actually inherited quite a large team at Outfronts. Um, and I, I loved it. I, I loved actually being able to work in more of a collaborative space um, and, you know, have a team that I could actually uh, <laughs> rely on <laughs> and delegate certain tasks because I, I ended up being really client facing at um, Outfront. So we had built the core infrastructure and it was really at this point more an educational process, both internally as well as externally. Uh, on how to sell this, how to use this tool, you know, from an internal standpoint, how do I use this tool to leverage um, market share, to leverage share voice, to gain more revenues, to increase sales, to incre increase profitability, all of those things. Uh, so there was a heavy educational component on the in internal side of things, um, particularly with, with a lot of uh, history in the Outfront organization. They've been around for decades upon decades. So introducing this new way of um, not just selling outdoor, but it was primarily focused on digital outdoor. It, it was quite a bit of a, a challenge. And then on the flip side of that, it was a heavy client facing side of, of my role because I would work very closely with the sales team and, um, you know, being the technical person that built the product who can explain it in relative layman's terms to the value prop of a client. I ended up going on a lot of the sales calls with the, the sales team. Uh, but it was it was so much fun. I honestly like I built such amazing relationships with the teams at Outfront, both those who reported to me, but also just like the general staff. Uh, everyone there was so amazing, and it was a bit of a culture shock at first. I'm a bit of you know entrepreneurial spirit, <laughs> kind of a free will, let's say. But uh, you know it was a publicly traded company, and so I had to to adapt to uh, some of the requirements that are are such in in public companies so it became a little bit more rigid with policies and procedures i imagine yeah exactly exactly i remember my one of my first days i got handed a, a dress code and i was like what is this what's oh. <laughs> a dress code policy <laughs> they're handing a fashionista and former model a dress code policy <laughs> i was like i'm not abiding by any of this i actually remember i, I had um I was wearing just like typical skinny jeans that had like the cutouts in the knee, like not, you know, that they weren't raggedy, but um, one of the IT uh, guys, he came up to me and he, we were pretty good friends and we had a, a casual banter that uh, we had back and forth. He was like, oh my God, you're wearing ripped jeans. And I was like, yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> It's against the company dress code. I was like, I don't care. <laughs> Here's a funny story for you about dress codes. Uh, when I was in university, this is a secondhand story. I was at Brock University in St. Catharines, and one of the members of provincial parliament was an NDP member uh, named Peter Cormos. He was a real grassroots politician, was pretty much guaranteed to hold his seat, and he would never really dress up in a suit in the Ontario legislature. So apparently, I think it was pretty sure it was under the Liberals. They handed out a dress code. And so he started, apparently he started showing up in a tuxedo, just to thumb his nose at the dress code. <laughs> he did that. be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so what's been the overall attraction for you with out-of-home advertising, say, versus digital or broadcast or anything like that? Honestly, it's such a beautiful media format. And I think my early love of out-of-home came when I actually had my first billboard as a model uh, at Young Dundas Square. It was for Jean Machine, not to date myself. <laughs> but, um, it was for Jean Machine. And, and it was a cheeky billboard, literally, in the sense that I was wearing a, a bench, um, like zip-up jacket. And, and it was a, a photo of my back and a side profile of my face. Uh, but on the billboard itself, they had me wearing these like booty shorts um, with no like 
pants, let's say it was just booty shorts. And then on the billboard itself, they attached a 3D extension that appeared to be a skirt. But when the wind blew, obviously being a 3D extension, it blew the skirt up and then you saw the booty shorts underneath. It got like a ton of press because it was, you know, at the time, very innovative and, and creative. I, I think that that's probably what initially spawned my interest in out of home. And then it just kind of grew happening to land some really interesting roles within the space. Uh, but I love the concept of, of disrupting a traditional media space with, with new and emerging technologies. And I think that the out of home industry had not seen a lot of innovation, um, not just in Canada, but globally for decades upon decades. And, you know, the onset of digital out of home just meant that we can take the same methodologies or very similar methodologies and approaches that the native online advertising space has with respect to attribution and audience targeting or audience segmentation and uh, impression buying rather than just, you know, buying a location because it's within a five meter proximity radius to a, to another location of interest or to a consumer's location. And I think that that's really pivotal, being a part of, of transforming an industry with new and innovative technologies is really something that I love. Do you think being a visual artist kind of helped for that passion? Because when you look at all the different forms of advertising, the different platforms and media out there, probably the one medium that's closest to being an artist is out of home because you really are given a canvas and kind of one shot to, to hit someone with something that could be relatively static. Yeah, that's probably part of it. Something subconscious, subconsciously I may not have, have um, recognized, but you're, you're probably right. I'm sure that has something to do with it, whether I, I realized it or not. Uh, I do, you know, it's such an impactful media format, you know, and I find myself, if I'm in my car, if I'm walking throughout the city, I'm always looking at the ads on billboards <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know if it's because I'm in the industry, but I'm always like, Oh, that's a really, really great use of the media format or, Oh, this is, there's too much text in this ad. It, it should have been with less text. <laughs> After Outfront, you moved away strictly from out of home advertising and you went all in on MarTech. What brought you to Centuries and what is Centuries? So I was um, headhunted, let's say, or scouted. I don't know what the, trendy word is for that but uh, I was approached by a recruiter friend of mine who owns his own recruitment company and he said you know listen I've got this buddy he's got a bunch of investors and they're they're creating this um, consulting firm let's say it was a combination of product development as well as uh, executive consultancy and he's like I think you would be perfect for you know, a, a partnership role with this company and, and to be involved in this. He's like, I know that the two of you, just from a personality standpoint, will get along really well. Uh, you'll have the opportunity to have your hands in a bunch of different projects and a bunch of different industry sectors. And so I said, okay, sure, you know, I'll have a conversation. It doesn't hurt to have a conversation. I wasn't looking, I wasn't, you know, trying to find any type of new role. It just kind of happened that, you know, it was quite a compelling um, opportunity. And so, Essentially, Centris um, is or was, I don't know, from my perspective, because I'm not there anymore. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it was both a product development firm. Uh, so we actually built um, blockchain as well as Web 3.0 machine learning, artificial intelligence products um, for startups as well as for Fortune 500 companies. Uh, so we internally developed a suite of cryptocurrency wallets, so a desktop wallet, uh, mobile iOS and um, Android wallets, and a Google Chrome plugin, as well as a fully decentralized marketplace uh, that would ultimately trade both cryptocurrency but also tokenized assets. And then we built um, what's called a permissioned chain, which is basically um, an enterprise blockchain let's say that could be used in a corporate um, environment. And that was acquired by a large Fortune 500 company. And the products were acquired by um, a blockchain proxy. And in addition to that, we essentially took um, a, a small ownership portion in other startups looking to develop products, tools, and assets either on blockchain or leveraging Web 3.0 to some degree. Uh, so we would take a small ownership uh, portion, we would provide a slight investment into these companies, and we would insert ourselves as executive consultants to help build the organization for the first, you know, six, three, six months, let's say, and then we would remove and move on to another project. 
so our goal was to really sort of try to bring these emerging technologies uh, to a wider range of audiences and to varying different sectors within um, many industries. It also sounds like you were trying your hand as a venture capitalist without even realizing it, just by the way the deals were cut. You mentioned taking a stake in a company and helping them out that way, but you only would help them if you acquired a small portion of it. Am I getting that correct? Yeah, that's exactly it, actually, Um, which it it was all new to me. I I had never really dabbled, let's say, in in venture capital. Um, So I I learned more than I can even imagine over my, my time uh, with the organization, both from a technical standpoint, but also from a fiscal standpoint and, and from a uh, venture cap perspective in terms of like what's required in order to gain investment from a VC uh, or investment from a, you know, PE firm versus uh, angel investor. Like they all have such different wants and requirements that uh, it was a really cool experience to actually be able to have visibility into all those varying um, components. And I think it probably helps ultimately with uh, the, the venture that I, I took post Centris. Front runner technologies. Tell us a bit about them and did you find them or did they find you? Yeah, so they, they found me. Um, it was interesting, actually. I, I had met uh, the original founder of Frontrunner Technologies. His name is Nathan Elliott at um, a conference I was speaking at while I was at Outfront. Uh, so during my time at, at you know Dynamic and Outfront, I was very much into um, speaking engagements. I would speak at a lot of conferences about the state of the industry and, and how it's changing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so he and one of the other partners um, were at a DPAA event, and I was speaking there. So they approached me afterwards, and we were just chit-chatting. Um, and then fast forward like three years <laughs> later... Uh, they had reached out to me because they saw that I was working at Centrist and were actually considering uh, leveraging some blockchain uh, technologies mm-hmm. for a supply chain logistics implementation. Uh, they were pondering, let's say. Um, so we took a meeting and it was, <laughs> it was an interesting and, and bold meeting, I have to say. And I'll give them credit to their, to their boldness. Uh, we met in my office at Centris, and uh, I quickly learned that it, it wasn't really an exploratory meeting, but more of like a, an interview. <laughs> Wait a minute. They came to your office at your current <laughs> job to give you a job interview. That is bold. It, it was bold. And at the end of it, one of the, the partners at Frontrunner had, had literally like the boldest statement I've ever received in my career. Word for word, she said, make no mistake, your future is with Frontrunner. <laughs> and um, so we, we just had some candid conversations um, about what potentially a, a relationship may look like. And I initially took an advisory role um, to help guide them as it pertains to the media side of the business. They had a, a very good understanding on the commercial real estate side uh, because the um, product sort of bridged the two worlds. Uh, but I, I joined as an advisor to help um, on the media side. And essentially what the company does is partner with um, major commercial real estate firms, brokerages, landlords, et cetera, across North America to gain access to vacant street level real estate. Um, so you can imagine during a COVID pandemic, this is prime time for vacant real estate. <laughs> and essentially we would deploy a proprietary technology that turns the street level window fronts into real-time immersive content and advertising. So really introducing a new um, asset class to the digital out-of-home space. Uh, So I found it quite compelling and ultimately ended up joining, outside of being an advisor, I joined as a full-time partner in the company. Uh, And I took an initial job as their chief data tech officer, and then I moved into chief information officer. Uh, And then... Recently, when I, I took my role at Comb, uh, I just stepped back more into an advisory role again with, uh, with Frontrunner. Okay, so that brings us full circle then to the Canadian Out-of-Home Marketing Measurement Bureau. Sorry, that is an absolute mouthful for me to say. So how did you get approached for that role? Because usually at the presidential level, they're not posting that job on a job board. They're usually shortlisting to candidate candidates quietly that they want to approach, and then they go from there. So how did that all come about? Throughout my out-of-home career, I always had personal involvement with Comb. 
Uh, I sat on their research committees. I sat on their technology committees um, throughout many, many years. So I was familiar with uh, many of the um, executives and the board members of Comb. And I was not aware that they were even looking for a new president. Uh, and the reason they were looking for a new president is because um, Roseanne Caron, who is the outgoing president, uh, retired at the end of this year, uh, basically now. <laughs> so um, it was in, I would say, early July. I received a, a text message from uh, a couple of different members of the board saying, you know, would you be interested in something like this? Um, I know you're you're very happy where you are. You guys are getting a ton of media with Frontrunner and, and things seem to be looking like they're going well. Um, but, you know, we know you've always had a passion for Comb and, and we think that it's a great opportunity to um, guide the industry as a whole versus just one organization into more of a digital transformation era. And so we started some back and forth dialogue and let's just say I'm relatively blunt <laughs> in, in conversations. I'm not sure if you've picked up on that yet, but <laughs> um, I, I said, you know, listen, Comb is a not-for-profit association that's governed by our members and our membership dues. And so if you're looking for somebody who is going to push the members and the board to probably somewhat uncomfortable areas uh, of opportunity as well as you know evolution then sure I, I will absolutely consider this but if you're looking to keep things status quo I'm probably not the right fit <laughs> and um, to my surprise and to my delight they uh, they embarked upon a journey with me well good on you for saying it like that though and not being so not so caught up in the fact that you get to be the president of it because a lot of people will get lost in the title and go you know what i'm just going to take it because once i've got it i've got it but you step forward and said i'm willing to do it but it's got to be on my terms yeah i've never really been somebody that's caught up on titles um i think titles are great if you know you're building your career and you're looking to enhance and obviously titles mean stepping stones to new titles and increased um personal growth and personal compensation from my perspective you know, a title is one thing in that realm, but on a day-to-day -day when you're in any type of organization, whether it's a publicly traded company, whether it's a startup, whether it's a not-for-profit association, you're going to end up doing way more than whatever your title indicates you're to do. <laughs> yes, and, I completely you know, agree. Like Comb is a small team. We're, I think, eight, eight people. We're eight people, including myself. And at the end of the day, sure, I have a title and I get to sign a bunch of papers, but I really need to be working with the team. And, and, you know, they're teaching me a lot along the way. I've only been in the role for two months. So there's a lot of legacy. There's a lot of history there. We're working on new methodologies for the Edophone space. We're working on new um, digital measurements and, and some really cool things that we'll launch in 2021. Uh, so coming in to a, a small team who I've worked with in a very different capacity, you know, previously in, in years past on research committees and technology committees now as technically their boss like you just have to let all of that go and say no okay we're just a team we're going to work together ignore the title other than it signs your paychecks <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm excited i really am amanda this is fantastic i'm having a great time chatting with you some rapid fire questions rapid fire questions okay rapid fire questions okay so the campaign you're most proud of, and I'm going to preface that as a, ca a campaign that you could be proud of as a model or as a marketer. Ooh, as a model, I'm going to choose. And it was a denim campaign for a company in Sweden that was seen globally. Oh, you got to tell us the company. What, what company is that? I, can't, I don't want to tell the company because then people will Google it. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, if you had said a Swedish denim company, and I know they're not strictly denim, I would have gone with H&M. It's not H&M, no. It's not H&M, okay. <laughs> Strictly a denim company. <laughs> gotcha, okay. Your favorite movie? I would say my all-time favorite movie is Dazed and Confused. Why that one? It just looks like so much fun. <laughs> oh, it's classic, like, free-spirited era. Um, and the music is great. Your favorite video game? Super Mario Classic. Going back to the old NES version where everyone was pixelated? Exactly. Yeah. I also liked Sonic the Hedgehog, like old school classic. And I do still have an Atari 
in a basement somewhere. <laughs> you know what? Hold on to that. Make sure it still works. You could probably flip that for a pretty penny on eBay. I probably could. I, sh I should check to make sure it works. Retro is in and people are willing to pay for retro, I found. <laughs> I like it. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? Oh, that's a tough one. I'm terrible with pop culture and, and celebrity names, but I always remember getting asked if I was the girl from the Dragon Tattoo movie. So I don't know what her name is, but I'm going to go with her. <laughs> You're talking about Rooney Mara. I guess I am. <laughs> okay. Your favorite song? Right now, my favorite song is uh, Gigamesh by Feral Youth, but it changes quite frequently. So, <laughs> <laughs> Best advice you have ever received? Be creative and always be curious. If you could go back in time and give your younger self advice, what would you say? I would say follow your gut instincts. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? I would probably be an artist because I just enjoy that creative outlet. Amanda, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. I've had a lot of fun, Victor. It's been really great. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.